Tate Chronicles now transmitting. Welcome to the Tate Chronicles on Healthcare Now Radio. And now, here's your host, Jim Tate. Good day, citizens of the free world. From border to border, coast to coast, and to all the ships at sea, I bring you a warm welcome. This is your correspondent, Jim Tate, and thank you for tuning in today to the Tate Chronicles. Join me as we cut through the fog that exists at the leading edge of healthcare, delivery, and technology. I'm really pleased today. My guest is Kendra Wyatt. Kendra is the co-founder and CEO of the New Birth Company. She has a background that also includes a long stint at Cerner and currently serves as the co-chair of the IHE Patient Care Coordinating Planning Committee. Kendra, welcome to the Tate Chronicles. Uh, Good morning. Thanks for having me. I want to uh, kind of start at square one, uh, Kendra. And so I'm aware you have a deep passion for creating systems to provide support for childbirth. How did this start? Why did it start? Oh, what what beckoned you to get into that? Um, thanks for asking, and I'll I'll do what I love uh, superhero uh, origin stories. So yes. I'm going to use the Marvel universe um, as we as we talk about this. Um, so part of the origin story uh, that that is helpful to understand is my background is in industrial engineering, and uh, so as I was getting into healthcare. I got exposed to the the patient care side and then came to understand that the care delivery folks were working within a system. And that intrigued me to ask, well, who's designing the system? And and, uh, an example of that is our fee-for-service reimbursement model, which dictates what you do, what services you provide for a fee. And so very on in my uh, professional history. Um, I focused on healthcare in industrial engineering. I had a co-op at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. Many large health systems have industrial engineers in the, as part of their systems. And back in the day, again, we're talking about the late 90s, that was the space where many of the folks that worked in the beginnings of healthcare information technology, they were the ones that were involved in early implementations of the modern electronic medical record system. So when I was still in school, I got exposed to HEMS. I'm a, I'm a Dick mm-hmm. Covert scholar and got to go down to one of the conferences in Atlanta. And you remember, Jim, you know, sure. um, you know, uh, pre-virtual world, everybody got on a plane and we got together. And that was the one place that you could see all of the EHR vendor community and the revenue cycle for that matter together on one football field. And so got to see the, you know, HBOC and, and SMS and um, Cerner on the, on the same floor. And so I came out of school um, uh, and worked for Cerner right out of school with that, with that industrial engineering degree. And within uh, about 90 days or so I had the very unique opportunity to be um in uh, Neil Patterson's office. And so spent the next two years being an assistant to the CEO. And that's what I think of as my uh, virtual MBA and MHA in uh, in both healthcare delivery and, and healthcare systems. So I was at Cerner until um, 20, gosh, 2010. And during that time frame, 
um, did a number of, of roles in, in sales creation. And the real pivot moment, you know, you have those moments that you just have those gut checks. Why are you here? I remember being in a small community in West Virginia, and we were competing for the business for Cerner. And I remember the conversations were about how well the system was going to help with NICU babies, because those NICU babies make those health systems a lot of money. And I was struck by sitting, you know, you're in you're in the common area um, in the in the hospitals in those days where, you know, the, the common area in a hospital was kind of like the cafe. I mean, everybody came, sure. came in and, you know, that was a community area and seeing a young teenage mother who was obviously pregnant. And I was struck by and horrified by the idea that my livelihood was being driven by the idea of we all make more money if she goes into labor right now. I was not okay with that. So I had an opportunity uh, to, to go on a little sabbatical and get exposure um, uh, outside of the U.S. to both the, the depths and the breadths of how good and how bad maternity care can be. Had gave birth twice myself and um, and pretty much after having uh, having those two kiddos, coming to the realization that I was part of the problem and wanting to get um, on the other side. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sure. And what is the other side? I guess that's the new birth company, correct? Yeah. So so our, our origin story, I want to give a shout out to my co-founder, um, Kathy Gordon, was uh, an entrepreneur, certified nurse midwife, family nurse practitioner. And the role of advanced practice nurses is certainly a whole thread um, that's worthy of a discussion itself. But she was my midwife for the birth of my wow. my second um, child. And so I gave birth, I've given birth in a hospital, and I've given birth in a birth center with a certified nurse midwife. And again, from a systems perspective, it was understanding that uh, I don't think there's, <laughs> I don't think there's any other service line where we over medicalize something on purpose. Uh, most other things we've figured out, you know, we need to start uh, start with the least amount of intervention and then you step up therapy, right? And right. so maternity care is a U-shaped design where we over medicalize situations that don't need it. And then we dramatically under support women during uh, during their active pregnancies. So that was the moment, that was the the key moment was giving birth myself. And, and again, you know, the superhero story is that you look around and say, well, nobody's fixing this problem. I guess I need to do it. So uh, lucky for me, I had a, a this worthy, um, fabulous woman uh, care provider partner. So we were really the tag team of a corporate mom, and a entrepreneur midwife and came together and started New Birth Company in 2010. And uh, so now we're in our 12th year of being a licensed freestanding business, uh, freestanding birth center, uh, nationally accredited in network with insurance. And I have provided uh, birth to uh, uh, close to 6,000 women. Mm. Well, you know the the model that you are talking about. Uh, uh, are you based in one state, Kendra? Yeah, so we're you know we're based in Overland Park, which is a sure. suburb of of Kansas City, and we're one of at any one point in time. There's about 400 freestanding uh, birth centers in America. We truly are the thing I, I love about the birth center model 
is that most other industrialized countries across the world uh, where healthcare is socialized, you don't see this uh, phenomenon as much because it represents entrepreneurship and small business. And so it's really something that's unique and special to America. And um, it's a model that if, uh, if we go and look up the, the White House maternity blueprint, and that's from uh, this administration or the last administration, so this is a bipartisan space, um, you will find that all of the policy recommendations say, gosh, we need to increase uh, access to midwifery and birth centers. And what they're saying is we need to uh, increase access to primary physiological healthy pregnancy and birth is what is what as as you drive this mission um uh, you you mentioned the profit centers for NICUs and hospitals um are the uh delivery services uh, inpatient delivery services a profit center um, you know, if you ask if you ask our, you know, uh, Kansas City, like many other football NFL size cities, have a number of both for profit and very rich non for profit health systems. Mm -hmm. um, they've been uh, birth has always been described as a quote loss leader, meaning that uh, the the cost of providing that very large, rich and deep facility for a normal vaginal delivery, for example, may or may not uh, pay the bills, that is completely offset by uh, the reference to million dollar NICU stays. Okay. And, 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 and I also think it needs to be said is that when, you know, how do women who still primarily drive 80% or so the, the, of the healthcare decisions for their families, how do they decide what health systems to align with? Well, a lot of their uh, a lot of uh, a lot of their natural um, where would they take their families is based on where do they give birth as a trusted partner. And I guess the reason I brought that up, Kendra, is ob obviously um, the service, I guess call it service or uh, for lack of a better term, whether you are in any way seen by the established corporate medical institutions as a threat to them in any way? Um, there is an absolute reason why uh, we don't have more vaginal deliveries inside birth centers, and that has to do with money and power. So let's let's talk about that a little sure, bit. Sure, sure. I referenced the fee-for-service model. The fee-for-service model does not pay for good outcomes. It doesn't pay you a, a, a kicker for having a 24-hour stay because you avoided opioids and were able to have a you know fabulous normal physiologic birth followed by some home visits. Our fee-for-service model rewards intensity of use of services, whether that could have been prevented or not. So, if uh, you know the way, I, I think I think it's a, a good thing for us to talk about the way pregnancy and birth and postpartum is paid for in the U.S is still very much fee-for-service, if not 100% fee-for-service, meaning uh, there, there's two primary ways that women are served during pregnancy. It's very highly dependent on the payer, whether you are paid for by an insurance, an employer-sponsored uh, insurance or the state and Medicaid. Medicaid folks are more likely to be uh, ushered and uh, treated at federally qualified health centers 
for their prenatal uh, perspective. And then those folks don't catch the babies. So then they are typically handed off to academic medical centers, which the double dip there, and again, a history thread is not only are they being served there, but then those moms are essentially serving a dual purpose of training other physicians by the use of their um, by the use of, of their their own bodies. Um, private practice are, you know, practices that range from, you know, as small as one to large private practices of 16 to 20 physicians. And then uh, those moms, again, are delivered inside that, that hospital setting. Based on the state, you would, you would have state laws dictating whether those hospitals can own those practices or not. So you get a lot of variance uh, of the the type of experience. And ultimately, Jim, and I've been very upfront with CMS about this, CMS is being, uh, Medicaid is being the largest purchaser of birth for America, really doesn't have good models yet where they're paying for an outcome and an episode of care. It's still very fragmented. It's still Mm -hmm. very based on fee for service. So you get paid more for a C-section, which takes less of a, provider's time and uh, choose up more intense resources in the hospital. Well, I imagine that uh, Medicaid reimbursement varies widely from state to state. It it, it absolutely does. So there there are some states that are on par with Medicare, for example, that Mm -hmm. pay this uh, pay which <laughs> I just laugh because um, Medicare is represented as being on a cost basis. It only covers your costs. Mm-hmm. So when we look at birth, we're talking about Medicaid, where it is a third, you know, if you're lucky, half in many in many states of Medicare. So it does not cover your cost. What incentive is there? for the private capitalist market to treat women equitably. There isn't. You you just you 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 can't force that expectation if we're not going to pay equitably uh for one person's birth versus the other. And I I I think that's wrong. Um one of the unique aspects of new birth company is that we've chosen to work with inside the systems. Uh we because we're on the state line, we're in network with both Kansas and Missouri Medicaid, uh, with the intention of being a change maker from from within. And uh, yeah, it's a it's it's a it's a mission. It really is. For um, listeners who are just joining us, I'm Jim Tate, and you're listening to the Tate Chronicles. Today, I'm joined by Kendra Wyatt of the New Birth Company. You, you bring up uh, an issue there around equity. Uh, and so let's discuss that issue uh, a little bit here. Uh, equity in healthcare means a lot of things to a lot of people. Some of it is, of course, access to healthcare, but some of it is uh, ingrained disequity, for lack of a better word. Uh, the rules that are generated for clinical decision support are based on certain uh majority groups uh, overweighted and clinical trials are overweighted certain demographic groups. Um, but then there's also uh, what's known as the digital divide, who has access to the technology. If you want to have a telehealth visit, you, you've either got to have a smartphone at the very minimum, 
preferably you need a laptop. So folks who don't have that, um, as technology has evolved in healthcare, especially connecting with patients, uh, it's it's helped the leading edge of adopters, but it seems like that divide is getting wider. What, what are your thoughts on that, Kendra? I could not I could not agree more. And here's what happens in birth. So in birth, um, and and uh, for anyone who's um, not seen Dope Sick on Hulu, I mm. highly I highly recommend it. I highly recommend it. Um, and uh, and I'm I'm bringing that up on purpose because in birth. You know, 30, 40 years ago, we had primary birth settings and and just very quickly, um, Mm -hmm. the level of care in birth, it it runs the gamut from we have to acknowledge home birth, birth centers, which are considered primary birth centers for low risk women, physiologic birth, and then the levels go one, two, three, four. Okay. And um, uh, very much driven by the pain era of the 90s of we don't want you to experience any pain whatsoever. Hospitals were under immense pressure to ensure that everyone, so this was a JCO, a CMS thing. Yes, yes. This was all about, you know, that smiley face, which now we realize actually came came Correct. from the pharma company, right? Correct. So, um, mm-hmm. so they were under immense pressure to, to keep, you know, to keep everybody at a zero pain level. And that put pressure on hospitals to make sure that they had 24-7 anesthesia available. And that, that requirement, therefore, put pressure on those family practice physicians. So again, I want you to think about small community hospitals, whether they were in suburban urban or or we really need to talk about our rural areas and it put the pressure on them to say if i cannot keep a 24 7 anesthesia person on quote on site available 24 7 we cannot do birth and so a large number of again primary birth settings have been shut down you can look at critical access hospitals across the u.s that their their history will say we used to have babies in this town we haven't had them for this long, and now our football team doesn't win, and we don't have peds, and 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 the the death spiral starts. So the 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 point there, Jim, is that we've been on a process roll on this digital divide that the it, the the incentive to make everything more intense and to bring everyone in, and who does that benefit? Well, it does a great job for those very large institutions by the way, which happened to be on Epic. I'm not saying that's bad for Epic. It just, there's a correlation there. Very large institutions happen to be on Epic. And the rest of the country, these smaller places are going to be on Meditech and Cerner. And and when it comes to pregnancy, birth, postpartum, we really need to talk about practice settings as well, because the majority of the pregnancy episode is not just about birth itself. But what we've done is we've funneled birth into the suburbs and into the city. And so you may be pregnant in that uh, in the during the outpatient prenatal space. And that is where we do need um, better telemedicine, because there's many moms who can be best served. And if we're really going to be equitable, we, we need to be thinking about how much it costs. I mean, the cost of gas is still very high. How much it costs a working class person to have to not be paid because they're more likely to be hourly versus salary. 
So they're not paid. They have to get in their car. They have to travel two hours to the big city to be seen potentially for 20 minutes and then turn around and go home again. And that's if you get in and out of your visit. So the digital divide is growing. And I would argue that is infecting our politics and our ability to work together on things that um, make make the American experience and the American experiment better. I guess to put on my, I don't know, Phil's philosopher's hat for, for just a moment here, um, it would seem that, um, you, you know, we often hear that the United States has the best health care in the world, uh, and it may for a certain subset of the population. Um, and so equ uh, equity would be more than just a subset of the population having um, access to that care. And you, you the, the concept of technology, so telehealth is a great example. We saw so it, it really its explosion during um, the, the COVID crisis that that would, you know, uh, maybe flatten the curve somewhat of of access who has easy access well i, I guess access is access uh any, any way you look at it um and so are you uh hopeful is this a political decision is it a cultural revolution needs to take place uh most i don't uh, you know there we don't have universal health care and so um I, I guess that's my question are, are you hopeful so here's here's what I found. First of all, I'm a radical optimist, and and mm -hmm. I, I I believe in the coalition of the willing, and there are really important and good coalitions of. Uh, when I said this is a bipartisan thing, um, my experience, for example, have been the the policies that we needed full practice authority for APRNs, for example, was very much in our state and community a Republican driven event. It was about the free market and you know letting mm -hmm. people compete, and that happened to agree with the national policy recommendations of we need every healthcare provider to operate at the highest level scope possible, and in some cases. It actually aligns with very strong faith traditions of birth is, you know, many people believe that that they're uh, that they are made by God to give birth. So there's these interesting connections that that um, and coalitions of the willing uh, to move forward. But I want to answer your question in a more direct way. Sure. We will not change things until we pay for something different. And right now we our payment system is inequitable. It doesn't care how far you have to drive to have a uh, normal primary birth experience. It is weighted towards the rich. It is uh, the benefit design itself is, is also weighted towards the rich. And the pocket, I call it the donut. Uh, and I really do believe there's a gap in policy folks understanding of what plan uh, design looks like for small businesses. There is a gap in, you can say, uh, we, we like to say that we, through the various programs, whether it's Medicaid or the federal exchange or employer-sponsored insurance and credits, that we've increased access and that the majority of women, in a, pregnant women in America would be covered 
you've got some asterisks where you're talking about non-eligible. So folks who are non-eligible for Medicaid, they may, may be non-documented, would not have that, but that's covered by EMTALA and our emergency access mm-hmm. to birth services. That said, underneath those very nice sounding trampolines of safety nets, you're talking about $4,000 deductibles. You're talking about deductibles that uh, are required if you need to see a specialist. Jim, I'm telling you with COVID, almost every mom uh, needs to be considered on was she exposed to COVID because that added stress on her placenta. So the, the system works uh for the few not not the many and certainly not for the working class and not for for working class small families um who might want to be entrepreneurs farmers uh small business owners and and i'm i'm very much an an advocate for them and and uh, i do find this is one space where it appears to me our bias our age bias so when i Mm. when i see that we've added on and, and this is an unfair because it feels like we're choosing, right? So every new drug that we add on for some, I call it miracle condition. And I still see moms and families putting off very basic access to basic uh, scanning and, and, and uh, uh, you know, ultrasounds and things that are necessary to ensure their safety. I see that trade-off. Mm-hmm. Because that's, that's not considered part of their plan benefit. I think we're I think we're making yeah. poor choices. I would invest in the young. <laughs> and so so I payment needs to change. I'd say number one. And people who have a fiduciary responsibility, and there are many people who do who have fiduciary responsibility for plans, uh, employer p- paid plans. I encourage them to uh, call their broker and say, "What are we doing about it?" Thank you for uh, that summation. Uh- Kendra, we're almost totally out of time. And some of the things I wanted to talk about, excuse me, we're not going to be able to talk about today. Uh, We're not going to be able to talk about data and interoperability and uh, some documentation I've seen you put together called uh, Mom on Fire, which really is a fascinating, almost critical path of how the fire uh, data uh, structure could do everything from lab work to to, uh, rapid reimbursement, the whole kind of thing. We may have to take that at another time. But before we totally run out of time here, what is the best way to find out more about the work that you're doing, resources, uh, and if you're willing, how they people could, our listeners, get in contact with you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and thanks again for uh, allowing uh, asking me on the show here. I encourage people check out our uh, our our website, newbirthcompany.com, Definitely our Instagram. Uh, and my uh, folks who are interested in contacting me directly, Jim, you're welcome to put my email on, on your show notes. It's Kendra K E N D R A at newbirthcompany.com. And uh, for folks who are interested in the mom on fire concept and to use a maternity episode of care as the defining use case that would cause the ONC and CMS to deliver real results when it comes to (laughs) HIT infrastructure for America, I encourage people to participate in the IHE 
Connectathon that's coming up in September. I can send you those details. Great. And certainly the IHC PCC uh, committee and its work group that's making direct recommendations to CMS and the ONC. Great. To our audience, thanks for joining me on this episode of the Tate Chronicles. I offer a special salute to my guest today, Kendra Wyatt. Kendra, thanks for coming aboard today. Absolutely. Thank you. You can find more information on this show's program page at healthcarenowradio.com. Until we meet again, here's wishing you smooth sailing and safe harbors. Tate Chronicles transmission ending now.